Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Monday, June 12th, we're studying Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. In today's text, John sees the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him, the 144,000 sealed with his name on their foreheads. Then John hears, he hears the new song that these saints are singing before the throne. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Dan Golden. Pastor Golden serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Pastor Golden, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Hey, thank you, and good morning. So we get started today, Pastor Golden. Talk to us a little bit about the book of Revelation in general. How do we need to approach it as Christians to read it faithfully, and why is it a helpful and useful book to us? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I can say uh, even before seminary, or seminary years, the Revelation of St. John is certainly the book of the Bible most requested for Bible study um, from, uh, from laymen and such. And it also should be the book of the Bible that is approached by pastors with some fear and trepidation of going into error. That's something I would agree with. But one thing that had always stuck with me, uh, one thing that we should always remember when approaching the book of Revelation is just to always recall the first five words of the book, Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is certainly a, a book of comfort um, for these times that we live in. And it also, it's not just a revelation of now and the future, it's also a revelation of the past. Um, part of this too, this, uh, this revelation text actually only comes up once in our lectionary, um, it is the epistle for the Festival of Holy Innocence, which mm. is just uh, three days after Christmas. Hmm. Okay, so our, our particular text from Revelation 14 shows up with the, the Holy Innocence. So hopefully we can maybe work that into our conversation a little bit, because I find that some very intriguing context to, to sure. keep in mind as we think about this text. So what about the, the surrounding context, chapters 12, 13 especially? What have we been reading about? How's that going to play into what we read today at the outset of chapter 14? Well, we're going to see a contrast because what we're going to see in 14 stands in a very clear opposition uh, to the name of the beast um, on the right hand or the forehead. and It follows a war. So this is almost, uh, it gives the appearance of a victory march to be sure, some sort of uh, mm. victorious time. Mm. Okay. So, I mean, when you think about what we've encountered in chapters 12 and especially in 13, the dragon and the two beasts that he has allied with, they've been very fearsome, fearful enemies. And as you said, we're in the context of a, of a fight. These beasts are making war upon the saints of God. And yet, as we read today, here is the Lamb victorious. Here are his saints victorious, apart from, at least in this context, any recording of the battle, which I suppose is is quite, quite comforting in the end that the saints 
are here at the end after having been attacked by the dragon and his two beasts. They're victorious with the lamb, apart from the fighting that they've done. They're victorious because of the fighting that the lamb has done. And I know it's kind of drawing together several things that we have seen in the in the book already and we will see, but it's it's quite the the contrast from the very frightening images of the dragon and his two beasts to now suddenly here's the here's the victory and and it's done. Yeah, yeah, and there's a certain totality that'll go along with that as well. All right, so let's take a look here. We are in Revelation chapter 14 beginning at verse 1. John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. That's our text for today. That's Revelation 14, verses 1 to 5. So thinking about these five verses as a whole, Pastor Golden, what are we seeing here? Um, well, we're seeing a, a vic- we're, we're certainly hearing a lot of things, right? A lot of sounds, um, a vast amount of people that are all alike in some way, uh, singing this new song. And they're all focused on one thing. They're all focused in facing this, this the lamb, the lamb on Mount Zion, um, with a lot of meetings within, within there too. And these are truth tellers. They're blameless for some reason. Um, and the, the, the clue we have is who they're facing, of course. Yeah, yeah. All right, so let's, let's talk about some of the details. First, John looks. So the first thing we get is what he sees. We're going to talk about what he hears second. And the first thing he, he looks, he's, he's seeing something upon Mount Zion. Now, I think this is the first time we've encountered Mount Zion in the book of Revelation. So why Mount Zion? What are, what are, what's the significance here? Well, Mount, Mount Zion is certainly uh, the place where God promises to dwell with his people. Um, and wherever it is that God chooses to, to dwell with his people, and he reveals that to us, there also... It, is his saving presence. It is the place of God's deliverance um, for those who for those who have been called and believe in the triune God. Um, and even greater than that, God tells us about it. God reveals it to us clearly. So if God tells you, um, be in this place, be in this Mount Zion that is portrayed nothing but positively, um, he promises that he will be with us in a saving presence. So it, with his saving presence. So darn it, we should be there too. <laughs> All right. So Mount Zion in the Old Testament, this is where the temple is located. It is in Jerusalem. So we're thinking the the eternal dwelling place of God here as we see it in, in Revelation. So Mount Zion is where John looks. And for us as Christians, Mount, Mount Zion is, is less about, I think it's an important point to make, Pastor Golden, it's less about a physical location in terms of going to Jerusalem where you find it on a map, but it's more about being with the Lamb, with, with being with Jesus Christ. That's where we're going to found, find Mount Zion today. It's not about where 
you know, going over to Israel. You, that's good. It's fine to do that. But you don't have to do that to go to Mount Zion today. Talk about what Mount Zion is for us as Christians. Yeah, it's definitely would be the place of the invisible church. It's not the building. It's not the bricks and mortar. It's not the four walls that surround us. But rather, it's the... Uh, sorry about that. But rather, it's the place of all believers. Um, yeah. It's those that confess the saving name of the Lamb in Jesus Christ. That's right. Yeah. So that's where Number John... Three gathered. Yes, that's right. That's right. So that's where John's looking. He's looking on Mount Zion, and there he sees the lamb standing. So remind us about the lamb that's standing here. Who are we talking about? Yeah, now this is uh, an amazing thing, because the lamb that's standing there um, in the midst of the throne by this time, of course, is slain. So we have a lamb who's living and who is slain, um, standing victorious in front of these, well, 144,000. I'm sure we'll get to that. That's right. That's right. Okay, so the the lamb standing as though he were slain. That takes us back to John or excuse me, Revelation chapter 5. That's where we saw the ascension of Jesus from heaven's perspective in that chapter. And here again John sees him. The lamb of course is is Jesus Christ. And he's he's standing here. Well, I don't want to move too fast any more on the lamb before we move on to who's standing there with him. Uh, no, well, just the looked and behold, because um, then John looked and behold. Um, there's a repeat of this combination of looking and be- and and giving the imperative uh, to behold this great multitude that no one from number no one could number is a repeat from chapter seven. Um, one thing I've always learned about, I've always kept in mind when I keep in mind the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. This is not like a foggy dream or a vision. It's mm-hmm. something that's like heaven. Um, it's not a review that resembles um, in this in this uh, manner the beginning of the end of the, on the last day. This is a clear vision of what God has chosen to reveal to John uh, by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. It's reality. It's not something that's. Uh, um, it's not any sort of foggy revelation. That's right. So he's he's seeing something that is real and true, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now he's seeing on Mount Zion, so this is the place that God is dwelling, the Lamb, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the one who is slain and now lives and reigns. And with him are these 144,000. They are those who have his name and the Father's name written on their forehead. So let's start by just talking about the number here again. We've met this group before back in chapter 7. Talk to us about the 144,000, particularly the matter of the number. Yeah, this is the second, and it is the uh, final time that it is mentioned. Um, And, well, quite simply, it's the totality of the Church of Believers, the saints, it's the totality of all of those who confess the triune name of, triune name of God. Um, it's also important to notice in this totality of the 144,000, not one was lost. And we'll see more of that in a bit. Now we've got this 144,000, and I remember the old uh, multiplication tables of elementary school. Um, that always went up to 12 times 12, and it was 144. So we immediately know this is something squared. Uh, We've got a multiple of 12. It's something that reflects uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Now, back in 
Numbers chapter 31, Moses chose 1,000 from each of 12 tribes. So that would only come out to about 12,000, though. But this has a, a, a squared to it. And squaring or even cubing um, as a symbolic number in the book of Revelation and elsewhere, squaring or cubing intensifies its meaning. So this is not just all. It's a way of saying this is really absolutely, totally all. Um, there is not one missing. So, um, so may so some people might say, well, why not just use the number? Well, twelve thousand. Uh, well, it's actually twelve squared first, and then times a thousand. Um, it also turns out, uh, as I was looking into these numbers a little bit, that the New Jerusalem. The city area of the New Jerusalem promised is 144 million square stadia. And a stadia is, well, it's about the length of a stadium. It's somewhere around 600 feet. Um, but this 144,000, no matter what angle you look at that number in Scripture, it is a totality. But as you can imagine, as John's seeing this, and as you know, we can somewhat envision it from what God has revealed to us, it retains a very military feel to it. Remember, we just yeah. followed up on a war. Uh, yeah. So 144,000, you know, was that number, was that a quantity that John counted? No, it's a symbolic of the totality that John has seen. Right. And we, we talk about that number in chapter 7. And within chapter 7, of course, John, first, he hears that number, 144,000, and he, he gets the breakdown, 12,000 in all these tribes. Then he turns and he looks, and he sees the multitude that no one can count who are standing there in the white robes. So the 144,000 is the totality of the church. In the context of Revelation 7, we did talk about how it seems the 144,000 is a depiction of the church militant, the church now still fighting the the war, still remaining or working to remain faithful even in the midst of the beast's attacks, which I think fits well in this context, because we have just seen how the dragon is making war on the church, how the dragon has been making use of the two beasts to continue to make war on the church. So what is the church doing? What are what is the 144,000 doing in the midst of all those attacks? Well, here, I, I think John is seeing that the church is standing there with the Lamb in his presence as those who belong to him. And I, I appreciate the point that you're making about that not one is lost. I think that's one of the significances of the fact that these, these people are counted, that, that God knows exactly how, they, how many they are, and there's, there's not too many, there's not too few. They're all there, all accounted for. God knows them each by name. They belong to him. And, and he knows them each by name because they each have his name on their foreheads. So that's what John also sees about this 144,000 in this context. They are those who have his name, that is the Lamb's name, and the Father's name written on their foreheads. Talk about this, this name that is written on their foreheads. Yeah, I could almost imagine John scanning through these foreheads, right? You know, is there anybody that doesn't belong here? Is there any marks of the beast on the uh, on the forehead, or is there any marks upon their hands, as it was from the uh, previous chapter? Or is there any blank foreheads? Are there are there um, unchosen ones there? Um, but no, it's it's an absolutely perfect scene. Um, the Father and the Lamb have not missed a, a single detail. 
you know, and you, so you start, you know, we begin to digress a little bit sometimes and wonder, well, what is this name? Is it my first name? Is it the, is it my first and middle name or is it my surname? Well, I, I think it's even better than that. Um, you know, sometimes around town, I'll see somebody wearing a baseball cap that's got Yahweh on it in Hebrew letters. Is it something like that? I think it's even more. Um, in fact, from Revelation, uh, from chapter 7, it says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Hmm. So God has means by which he preserves the total represented by the 144,000. And that is the means that he preserves the total during the time of now, during the time of millennial warfare, as it were. Um, you know, and what does this mean for us? Well, um, being Lutheran, we know that it is baptism, but that's something that was also clarified in chapter seven as well. They've washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Um, now, when they take, so, so when you think of a military view of this, I like to think of a practical application. We've got a lot of veterans here in our congregation, but when you join the military, you take an oath to uphold the words or the laws prescribed by the government. But in this church militant, um, you are drafted. And it's not a draft that you can dodge. You may kick and scream along the way, but you are called and enlightened by the, by the gospel. But the initiation or the oath, the promise that is in the church militant is made for you. It's done for you. And even more than that, it's a blood oath, a holy blood oath, one by the blood of Christ. So there is already, right now, this is the comfort for, for Christians, is there's already a mark upon your forehead, much more permanent than any sort of medals or stripes on your shoulder. This is a mark that is visible this very moment to the Father and to, the lamb, and to their Lamb. And the mark of their name, it's, it's not just like an autograph. It's not a John Hancock. Um, it's their autograph, first, because you've been called to faith in the Lamb and have been baptized. Um, they've done more than just sign your name on you, however. They've given their holy name to you. Um, there is a, there's a wholeness in that, that it's more than just uh, the signing off of a contract. Um, it's a promise um, that's sealed by their very name upon your body and soul. Yeah, as you said, chapter 7 provides that context and invites us to to think about this in terms of holy baptism, especially in the context of what we have been reading with the dragon and his two beasts. The previous beast, the one that arose from the land, was working to put that name, the name of the beast, and the number of its name onto people. And so to see here the church standing triumphant, not bearing that mark, not bearing the mark of, of unbelief of the beast, but rather bearing the mark of the triune God in holy baptism, again, should be a great comfort that even as the devil and all of his henchmen are attacking the Christian church, the lamb is standing in the midst of his church and preserving them through the means that he has given them. He has marked them as his own. He knows who they are. He is standing in their midst, giving his gifts from Mount Zion, and, and that's true even as the dragon and his beast are working their worst. That's not to say that we shouldn't take their attacks seriously, we very much should, but we should have the confidence to see this part of the vision as well, 
to know that here is the Lamb standing in the midst of his church, preserving his people, because he has marked them as his own. He he calls them by name. They follow him. We've got the good shepherd picture going on in this text. Again, another connection to, to Revelation chapter 7. That does make this a, a vision of great comfort that John sees there in verse 1. Yeah, and I bet you at this very moment, um, I bet you could hear a pin drop in the very next split second, in, in especially John's anticipation of what's going to happen next. Especially so, since we've already been, we have such a contrast from the previous chapter. That's right. That's right. So as you as you pointed out, he's seeing, he's looking in verse one, and then in verse two, now he hears. So talk about what John hears, starting in verse two. Yeah, he hears a single voice. He doesn't hear a myriad of voices or a plethora of voices. He hears a single voice that sounded like many. Well, and so. How can you hear many in a single voice, many and a single voice at the same time? Uh, here we have harmony playing out for us in Scripture. I think about whenever we sing the common doxology at church, whenever we have like a luncheon or something in the fellowship hall, any sort of large gathering that might not have an organ or a piano available, a lot of times we'll sing, um, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And of course, you know, some of us are out of tune. Some of us are singing too loud. Some of us are singing too soft, might be shy or too low or too high. But somehow it always seems to harmonize itself. Uh, we see this. this is a, music is a true gift from God. Now, that might be with 40 or 50 people. Now, try to imagine that with a totality hmm. of 144,000 plus. <laughs> I, I hate yeah. to put that number on it, but... Uh, you would know it was many, but it would be, as John says, as a, as a single voice. You know, I think of, uh, uh, you know, and that's outside of the worship context, but in the worship context, a lot of times on Christmas Eve at the midnight service, we might sing the final stanza of Silent Night with no, with no uh, accompanying organ. Uh, and, and that's something that uh, you can really you can really appreciate the harmony that comes together of all the believers. You know, I remember at the Reformation 500 celebration that we had uh, four years ago now, no, six, gosh, six years ago now. Um, yeah. There's about 5,000 people singing A Mighty Fortress, and there wasn't, there was an organ that was playing rather loud, but I just, I really cannot recall the sound of the organ. All I can recall was the uh, the harmonized voices of 5,000 saints singing their hearts out of, of uh, a, a mighty fortress. Um, all this within a single voice that John hears. Mm, yeah, okay, so the, the single voice that he hears, he describes it sounding first like the roar of many waters, and then like the sound of loud thunder, and then as the voice of harpists playing on their harps. So talk about these this variety of sounds that John uses to describe this single voice. Well, sure. If you've if you've ever been to the beach, the ocean front, um, especially out at night when there's not a lot of other noise going on, it's it's almost deafening what um, the roar of one body of water can do. Here we have the roar of many waters, and then the the sound of loud thunder. Well, thunder is loud already. So there's a special emphasis that John gives uh, 
that the Holy Spirit gives to us describing this as the sound of loud thunder. And all within this scene, this unity, this one single voice um, was also like many harpists playing on their harps. Um, saints made music with their voices. And it, so, so it had order to it. Uh, hmm. I think that's what the harp brings in. There's, there's an order to it. It's not random crashing ocean waves. It's not random rolling thunder that's placed chaotically, um, but it's harmonized in this in this one voice, um, you know. And I think uh, I think within this, practically speaking, there's a there's a lesson here for churches that struggle to have an organist. It's a very real opportunity we have in these days. Um, some congregations, when their organists uh, may be on vacation or not available, they'll just change to a spoken liturgy um, uh, rather than do the chanting and do the singing um, that's within the liturgy. Um, I think, uh, well, perhaps, uh, I think that the, uh, the believers in our pews have it already in their hearts and in their minds. I, I would say that your people know these tunes. Um, I think thoughtful planning could foster more music in congregations that don't have an, an organist. It is harder work to, to do, for sure. But with this revelation and reading in mind, I, I would even begin with the Sanctus. Um, I remember visiting a congregation where we spoke through the Sanctus, and in my, in my mind, I was still singing it. Um, but that's especially a place um, that reflects revelation where we praise God with the whole company of heaven. Mm. Yeah, I, I love I love the the thought of the voices simply being musical, and and this is something that I do try to encourage people to say. Well, Pastor, I I can't play an instrument. Well, yeah, you have an instrument. It's your voice, so go ahead and sing and and sing it. I mean, this is what the Lord says to do. He just says to sing. It doesn't doesn't say about being anything about on on tune or anything like that. And as you said, so often it just the voices tune themselves in praise to God because that is what gives them true harmony and concert is the fact that they are joining together to praise the same one, to praise the lamb who was slain that now reigns. And this is, I mean, so yes, use your voice, dear Christian, as your instrument to praise your heavenly father, because when you do, you are uniting your voice to the church in heaven. And what a glorious picture that is that St. John sees. We're going to keep looking at this picture on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Dan Golden this morning about Revelation 14. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love.
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, June 12th. We are studying Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 5 with Pastor Dan Golden. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Parker, Parkersburg, West Virginia. Pastor Golden, prior to the break, we were talking about the voice that John hears, the single voice that is like the roar of many waters, the sound of loud thunder, the sound of harpists playing on their harps, the voices of the church joined together as their music before the Lord. And John says that in verse 3, they are singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders who are also there around the throne. So talk about this new song that they are singing. Yeah, the new song, uh, it appeared to us before in Revelation uh, chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's starting at verse 9 and goes on from there. Also, we have a reflection of a new song from uh, in the book of Psalms, Psalms 96 in verse 1 and 2, which is uh, speaks of the new song here. Let me get to that. In Psalm 96, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. You know, and there... It says, you know, there's a there's a small little quip in there before the throne. They were singing a new song before the throne. So they're actually facing the throne. This is not just standing around casually talking with their neighbors and such. They're all facing uh, facing the throne in this before before the word. And they're facing the four living creatures in the face in the face of the elders. Um this, uh, again, this recalls the throne scene from Revelation 5, where the lamb was standing slain, yet living, um, still bearing the testifying marks of the atonement on the cross as well. Um, mm. This new song, it's most simply put, to summarize it, it acknowledges God of being worthy. Now, our word that we say worship actually comes from this same sort of combination of words that has worthy in it. So this worship song is about the worth of God. It's acknowledging our subordination to um, the triune God who has saved us and revealed to us how he saves us. But, (laughs) you know, as it's mentioned, this is something new. Why is it new? Why isn't it something that I can sing now? I want to know it now. Tell me all about it now. Um, well, one of the things about a new song also comes up in the Psalms, in Psalm 40, Psalm 40 in verse 3, we learn, we learn of the Lord, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. So on that last day, in his good time, at that beginning of the end, God will put it there. Uh, you'll be able to participate with the ocean waves and the rolling thunder and and the harmony of the harps. Um, You don't even need to practice it before you go into divine service on that Sunday, um, or whatever day that might be, of course. Uh, This new song, why is it new? Well, it's also, it's part of the new creation in Christ. It's something that they've actually been singing in heaven since the ascension. It's it's a victory song for for the king. It's something they're 
singing now. I mean, John heard this 2,000 years ago. Uh, they're singing this as they wait for us to join them. Hmm. Um, you know, when I think about the, the practical application of this, how excited do how excited do we get about singing a new hymn on Sunday? Well, uh, traditionally, we, we approach that too with fear and trepidation when we see uh, when we see notes jumping around and a lot of quarter notes and half notes that don't make sense to us. Well, many people don't get excited about a new hymn that we sing on Sunday. Some do, some don't. Well, this is a guarantee of the comfort in this uh, revel in this revelation is. This is a song for all to be excited about. Um, I can't wait to be able to sing that new song on the last day, and I don't need to worry about practicing it because God's going to put it there for me. It'll just, it'll be something that's heavenly and comes naturally. I, I think about the excitement of my own children, especially as we approach Easter. You know, we haven't been singing Alleluia during the season of Lent. We haven't been singing This is the Feast, the hymn of praise during the season of Lent. And I think about the excitement of my my children to sing This is the Feast on Easter. I think that that is the excitement which the Church uh, should have now to to be in that eternal choir. At the same time, though, Pastor Golden, I, I really I want to see Revelation 14 as not only describing the Church in eternity, which I think it, it certainly does. We should expect that the Church will be singing this new song forever, and we should rejoice to join that choir. I also think we, we should see Revelation 14 describing what the Church is doing right now in the midst of the attacks of the dragon and the two beasts. And again, the, the number 144,000 describing especially the Church militant. What What is the Church doing right now, even as the dragon and the two beasts are attacking her? The church is singing the new song of victory, which is a remarkable thing. You know, you think about in, when you're in the midst of of the war as the church militant. What are you? What are you going to do? You're going to sing, and you're going to sing about a victory that's already been won, even as the battle is being waged. That that is a remarkable thing, and yet a very bold and daring thing to do. That every week. The world attacks us. The devil comes at us with all of his fiery darts throughout the week. And what do we do on Sunday morning? We join together and we sing that song that Christ has won the victory already, and he reigns as the, the lamb who was slain and now lives again. That is, that is a remarkable thing in the context of, of what we've just seen. And it really it highlights what you were saying toward the beginning, that this is a book of hope. This is a book of comfort. And that hope and comfort is something that we have as Christians, even right now, yes, in part, and there's still we are still waiting for the fullness, but that hope and comfort is ours right now. And so we we sing this song boldly already as the church militant, even as we wait to sing it with the church triumphant in its full joy. Yeah, there's an uncertain tension of now, but not yet. Uh the battle is over, the war is won, and we just await for the sentence to be executed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the yeah. sentence has been pronounced, and the, the sentence will be executed on that day. That's right. So so sing now, dear church. Sing, sing, dear Christians. You have that instrument. Join with the choir already, and, and sing to the, to the Lamb who is slain that has begun his reign. Alleluia. Join in this new song that we will be singing 
for all eternity. Now, this is the song of the church. John says that no one can learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So this is going to be a song that that only Christians are going to sing, which, I mean, that, that makes sense, that those who praise the Lamb are those who trust in Him. And so this, and of course, the, the goal is to, to get more to join the choir. This is why the church proclaims the gospel now, so that more would learn this song. But, but only those who, who have heard and believed the gospel through the power of the Spirit, they're the ones that, that learn this song. And then John continues to describe this group. In verse 4 of our text, he says that it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. What's being spoken about the 144,000, the church, in that part of verse 4? Yeah, I, I think, too, we shouldn't gloss too fast past the first few words, that it is these, because there again we have a, a single but many. Um, it's another combination of singular and plural. These are those that refer to those that have been redeemed from earth. Those are the purchased ones. Um, and it, the singular, again, stresses that unity and oneness. Um you know, I'd also say that it was done with one purchase, one redemption by Jesus Christ alone. Um, the scripture depicts the church as one bride, yet a betrothed bride, not not yet having been exalted into heaven, but the, the bride of Christ, to be Christ's bride, it is these, it demands in its very nature to be undefiled. Um, those who have not defiled themselves with women, as it's put. So, uh, miraculously, it's not up to us to undefile ourselves or to cleanse ourselves. It's the bridegroom that washes the bride, the bridegroom that cleanses the bride. To the groom, to the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, the bride is that of a virgin, that which is holy to him. Um, and as we try to understand uh for they are virgins, that is, those who are the faithful believers who refuse to worship anything uh, but the Trinity. Um, uh, and I'll stop there after that. Yeah, well, I think I think that's that's helpful. These are those who refuse to worship anyone but the the one true God. I think that's a an important thing to to keep in mind with this description, because one thing we shouldn't take from this turn of phrase is that somehow. Those who are those who are married are somehow less holy or less a part of this group than than those who are unmarried. That that's not the point of those who have not defiled themselves with women and, and are virgins. Correct. I, I think of how often in the the Old Testament, the the idolatry of the people of God is compared to adultery, and I think that's the way we need to understand what's happening here. It's it's certainly not speaking uh, poorly of of marriage or somehow denigrating that as a, a less than spiritual state before before God. We know from the rest of Scripture that God highly values marriage and and wants men and women to delight themselves in that gift according to the, the commandments that he's given. Uh, here, the, the matter of being a virgin, I think, is that matter of purity in terms of they have not engaged in the idolatry of the dragon and the two beasts. Rather, they remain faithful to the Lord as, as his own church. Yeah, uh, you know... Overall, with that first sentence, sentence in verse 4, some people will ask, why is this a guy? Why is it portrayed as a male? Why is this church militant singing a new song depicted as a male? Well, 
The Bible in many places, Scripture also portrays God's people as male at times, not only as a, as a feminine bride, but like Israel is a singular male name for God's people. Also Jacob and Judah. Um, one of the things I, I found in Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Um, even in parables, Jesus uh, portrays the, the, church, the church of believers as male, whether it be the prodigal son, the workers in the vineyard. Um, and using the male gender is also appropriate to the scene of military victory being um, revealed to John by Jesus here. Um, you know, and even at one time, um, it was virgin men who were consecrated to the battle. They were made holy. Um, from Deuteronomy 20, verse 7, And is there any man who has betrothed the wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. Uh, so it it's really not a, it it's not an issue, I, I would say, because a lot of times we think of the church as the bride, but why is this being depicted as a male? Well, it does that in many other places in Scripture as well. Mm. Now, the rest of verse 4 says, it is these, we have that same turn of phrase there, it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. That sounds like a, a nursery rhyme, but it's, it's <laughs> little, the, Mary had a little lamb, the lamb was following Mary. So this is the opposite. We're following the lamb here. Yeah, this is during the, the time of the tribulation, the millennium, um, and this is from the time of the ascension of Jesus Christ in heaven to sit at the right hand of God. Um, to this last day that John is, is seeing. Um, you know, when he calls, we answer. When he leads, we follow. When he speaks, well, we listen because he is the worthy one. It's in the song, worthy is the lamb. Uh, you know, and these redeemed from the earth are also depicted as the, the redeemed from mankind, as we'll see here in a little bit. You know, and I, I'm thinking too. So far, John has seen, and John, John so far, John has heard. Um, he's in a completely receptive mode here. I find that um, strikingly Lutheran. That's right. I, I do. I do love this this picture of following the Lamb wherever he goes, because this is. I mean, this is, you think through the the Gospels. This was the call of Jesus: "Follow me." Uh, that's that's what it means. To be a Christian is to follow the Savior, the, to carry the cross, and and follow Him, and that means to go through the suffering. We've we've talked about that in chapter thirteen extensively. That that yes, the the dragon attacks, and so do the beasts, and and we do suffer here in this life. You know, you look at the economic consequences that were described in the second beast. We talked about the the captivity and the sword being used against Christians with the first beast. These, these are the realities. But why do we endure that as Christians? It is because we are following the Lamb wherever He goes. We are following Him, carrying His cross, knowing that even as He takes us through suffering and death, He is taking us to eternal life. And again, that's, that's the picture that we're seeing here in Revelation 14, these first five verses. And I, I, so I think that's just a beautiful expression that this, this group of 144,000, those are the ones who follow him wherever he goes. These are his disciples. They, they trust him. They receive, to use as you said, the, this is the receptive nature. They receive whatever he gives them 
as a gift from his hand, knowing that it is good and that he is taking them to eternal life, no matter what path he may lead. So they're following him. They are Talk more about this, this redeemed, the matter that they're the redeemed of mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Yeah, uh, normally we might see something of like where we might think of it as redeemed from the earth, but they're depicted here as redeemed from, well, the rest of mankind. Um, well, first, I think, why is it, uh, why is it that they're depicted as redeemed from mankind? Well, it's in order to be first fruits for God and the Lamb. Uh, and, and I recall here Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, spiritual worship is acknowledging the Lamb. Spiritual worship is confessing the Lamb and the Father. And in this, in this case, it's in a new song, on the new day, in which the Lamb is the most worthy. So then that begs the question, well, how do we be this first fruit? Um, I always like to, when I think of first fruits and how do we commend ourselves to his worthiness, I think of the, the Luther's uh, morning and evening prayers. But I think it is to commend yourself, body and soul, to be at God's disposal as a slave to Christ or as the slave of the Lamb. Um, as as in both of those prayers are, for into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. It, 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 it's it's all yours, God, is, is, is the way I would put it. So then we come to the last verse of our text, verse 5. Again, we're still talking about this group. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Talk about this description of the 144,000. Yeah, verse 5 tells us what wasn't in their mouth. Um, so I, I think that begs the question, well, what, it, what, what is in their mouth? Or what was in their mouth? Uh, because in their mouth now is a new song. But this is past tense. Um, in their mouth no lie was found. Well, what must be in your mouth for no lie to be found? Well, it has to be the truth. Um, in, uh, in Isaiah, I recall in 53 verse 9, there was no deceit in his mouth. And this is the lamb led to slaughter. Now, there are those whose sins have been washed away. The, the pollution of lies um, have been removed by the blood of the lamb. And even by this verse's very implication, well, lies lead to blame, whereas truth leads to blamelessness. Um, so on this last day, this beginning of the end, um, and at the end of the millennium of trials and temptations, the only thing that still stands, that prevails above all, that comes out of, uh, of the mess of this, uh, this world and sin and death and the devil, truth prevails. Um, you know, when you tell a lie, and that untrue statement is recalled later by another person. It takes another lie to keep secret the first lie. And they, they just pile upon each other. Lies pile upon other lies. And the mess is never, never cleaned. Well, the good news is that there will be a day when the victory of the Lamb is fully realized. 
and the sentence upon lies is executed and carried out. Now, the, now coming out of the mouths of believing Christians is the only thing that remains, and that's the truth. And that's how the truth is portrayed in today's Revelation reading. It's sung. It's sung loudly. It's sung without blemish. It's sung in a perfect harmony, all in one united voice. Um, and I think altogether, with this reading in mind, gosh, my friends in Christ out there, when you go to church on Sunday, sing your forgiven heart out. Even if you think you sing too low or too quiet or too loud or you're out of pitch, um, sing your heart out anyway. It'll harmonize, I promise. That's right. Well, and, and that is why I, I do think it's it's so helpful to think of this text again, not only in terms of the last day, but also in terms of the church militant right now. What what is the church doing right now? We are singing this new song. We are singing the song of the Lamb. We are are singing the truth. We are confessing the truth in our song. And I think that that's a, a key thing that that you're bringing out in terms of this truth that's been put into our mouths. What's what's one of the ways that we speak that truth? It is through song. We confess that truth through the, the hymnody that we sing every Sunday. This is, is singing that truth to the world to proclaim the victory of Christ already. Now, one thing I, I do want to want to come back to, Pastor Golden, before, we, before we're done here, because we have about five minutes or so, we, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that liturgically, this text, Revelation 14, 1 to 5, is used on the, the Feast of the Holy Innocents. And the, the Feast of the Holy Innocents is observed during the 12 days of Christmas. It's on December 28th. And that is the, the commemoration for those baby boys in Bethlehem who were, were martyred because of King Herod when he was trying to kill Jesus. So the, the gospel reading is, is familiar enough. It comes from Matthew 2 after Jesus has fled to Egypt and Herod commits his evil deed. As you said, this is the, the epistle reading that comes up. How, do, how does it apply? What do, you, what do you think? What is that context of this being read for the holy innocence? What does that add to the way that we understand this text? Yeah, as we read and hear John's revelation in this reading, um, I think our immediate minds and our vision as we try to envision this uh, pictures 144,000 adults. And there are many more saints than just than just adults. This is the all-inclusiveness, the totality of this um, includes those who were early on promoted to the citizens citizenship of heaven. Um, and that's something that's commemorated in the in the festival of holy innocence. Um, that part of this 144,000 are those who have been, uh, lost way too young, those we've lost in our family way too young, or even before, or even before they took their first breath. Um, those are included as well. Uh, you know, as we said before, God does not leave behind even one. He, he knows every single hair that is upon our head, and he knows every single body and soul that he has created. Hmm. I think I think it does it it certainly in, enhances the picture as you were saying that the 144,000 we do we kind of picture that that army I mean that's the image that you were giving us of of men all in a straight line kind of all I mean perfectly arranged and yet to to hear this text on the holy innocence is a reminder that yeah it's it's a crowd of of people of all ages men women children uh, aged and and young both they're they're all there those who have believed in the lamb 
I think it also is a reminder that martyrdom is not a defeat. Martyrdom is a is actually it, it's a being victory in the Lord. That what looked like defeat in earthly eyes is is transformed into victory through the Lamb who was slain and now lives again. And I think it it also uh, shows the it shows the reality of the verse from Psalm one hundred sixteen that the where where the psalmist says, "Precious in the sight of the Lord is is the death of his saints." You know what what a and we even talk about Herod's act like this. It was a senseless act, and it, it was a senseless act. And yet, from that senseless act, the Lord did not forget his little saints, those baby boys in Bethlehem, but he he held their death precious in his sight, and he he made them a part of this 144,000, this, this saintly crowd, and they are now singing the song of the Lamb there before his throne, even as, as we are singing the song here, waiting. Pastor Golden, we have about a minute left. Help us to, to wrap things up on this wonderful text from Revelation 14 this morning. Sure. Um, you know, looking at the, the reading from Jeremiah that's quoted in the Matthew text for the Festival of the Holy Innocents. Um, Thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 31, verse 15, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children and she refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So even at the times of, of bitter loss of children, of, of, of innocent ones, of ones that uh, never even saw the light of day, God hears the cries of the saints uh, that weep for them, that lament for them, and God will ultimately comfort them along with the rest of us in this totality, this absolute, clear, total 144,000, the entire invisible church on earth, all get to face the Lamb and the Father and, and sing this new song um, into eternity. Pastor Dan Golden is pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Parkersburg, West Virginia, he has been helping us today to study Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Pastor Golden, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about this part of Revelation 14, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk again tomorrow.